0: welcome to another episode of top lines and Tales, your weekly livestock podcast as always we'd like to thank our sponsors harbro for their continued support this week on Top Lines and Tales, we go back to the USA and talk to my good friend, uh, Dr. Bob Hoke there. Bob, welcome back to the podcast.
1: Well, it, it's always fun to be on, and I always appreciate when you have me on. It's always an honor, so thank you.
0: Well, Bob, uh, this week is someone that you've brought to my attention and uh, a fascinating story of a of a lady called uh, Sal Form. And, uh, we're going to go back in and study a little bit of history of this wonderful woman because she really is uh, something that uh, is... Interesting and fascinating to a lot of people. So let, let's just step back to the beginning of, uh, well, to this story. We'll start with uh, her husband, Waldo Forbes. And I think his family had been ranching in the West maybe since the 1890s, that'd be right. And, and Waldo took over the ranch uh, uh, sometime. Bob, tell us a bit about Waldo.
1: Oh, well, well, I mean Waldo's family—they were from the east, but they, yeah, they—they they bought the ranch in the eighteen nineties. Waldo took over management of the ranch. I mean, he was a full-time rancher from the nineteen thirties, and then he, uh, he married Sal in nineteen forty, and uh, she was also from the east. And boy, she came outside yeah. unseen. Well, and you know, Waldo was very successful, and uh, and he was a he was an excellent rancher, and uh you know they had a variety of you know they did Shorthorns and air showers, they milked a few cows and they had rambles i think and you know they, they tried various things before they finally settled on
0: red angus okay red angus we'll go into in it it's Sal that we really want to focus on, on today, anyway, and she is the very first lady, I think, to have her portrait added to the prestigious house. The Saddle and Sirloin Gallery there in Kentucky, which is pretty much the highest honor in the U.S. livestock industry, isn't it, Bob? And uh, I think you you were involved in putting that packet together for her.
1: Yeah, I, I did, and uh, boy, we were in it, I think, three or four years, and, and we wondered whether they would ever put a woman in, and uh, and finally they did, and and got her portrait added in 2008, and, and that was really quite an honor, but to, to give you a, a, a viewpoint on Sal, though, she didn't want mentioned in the ceremony, in the banquet, that she was the first woman. She just wanted to be another producer. So uh, that—that's the kind of person she was. But yeah, she—if she, there was anybody that should have been the first woman, it should have been her.
0: Well, you're right there. And man woman or other. It's—it's a—it's a fantastic honor, as I said, to get you get the portrait in there. It does recognize some of the greatest cattle breeders in in the USA over a long period of time. Is there three or four hundred three or four hundred portraits in there, Bob? Is there something like that?
1: Right. Yeah, there's about 300 portraits. I mean, it goes back to the Colling Brothers and Hugh Watson and William McCombie on through. And then we add one a year gets added. Uh, uh, so, But it has all the old masters from starting in, in Great Britain on through. And yeah. uh, it's a wonderful collection.
0: It's somewhere I, I'm desperate to go and see you one day. Hopefully, I'll get an invite in there to go and to go and take a look at that. And let's just uh, go back. And let's pick up with Sal and go back to the beginning because it's not just Sal, but she's got a massive family uh, history behind her, hasn't she? And uh, I, I believe wasn't her family were, were the very earliest British settlers in America.
1: Yeah, you know, uh, one of her uh, ancestors came over the first uh, permanent. British colony in in the in, uh, in what would become the United States in the British colonies was uh, Jamestown in Virginia, uh, the Virgin Queen, uh, and so the uh, it was in 1607, and and one of her ancestors came over as an indentured servant in 1609 to Jamestown, and and spent uh, se- seven years and went back to Britain England and. Uh, I think 1616 and then um, and then was hired to uh, to by the company that was sponsoring the uh, pilgrims uh, the, the the Puritans that were coming over to start one of the next major colonies or uh, settlements and they hired him to uh, accompany them and 1620 so he signed that pact and so he was uh, the two you know basic uh settlements from from the uh, great britain that, that happened in the united states he was he was involved in both of them and he, he stayed brought his family on the second time with the pilgrims and 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 stayed from that point on he, he stayed here in the uh, north america
0: I'm I'm just looking back at my history, and would that be the Mayflower? Or would that be? Was that the boat he came on? That certainly that's certainly the, he came
1: over on the Mayflower exactly.
0: Wow, wow. What 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 a history that is to start with, and uh, and then didn't one of his descendants go on, I believe, and signed the Treaty of Independence? This is some some history lesson we're getting here, Bob.
1: <laughs> yeah, that is, you know, he uh, there was a there was a Boston Massacre, and, and that's where he first. It was Robert Treat Payne. Was his name and uh, the Payne family, and uh, there was the Boston Massacre because the, you know, they were getting kind of fired up about taxes and you know over here and and they wanted representation because you yeah, know people who came over were kind of a little bit uh, you know rebelish to begin with you know the to come to the North America you know they they wanted land or they wanted religious freedom and so they were a little antsy kind of people and uh and and they were snowballing a bunch of british troops that were in boston and the, and the troops fired on them and so they had a trial and uh and robert tree Payne he was a prosecutor and then john adams who was our second president he defended them uh so they wanted a, a you know real defense and and so they they some of them got uh, forbid slaughter, but anyway, then he he got on the Continental Congress, and he signed. He was one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, uh, which split split our colonies from Great Britain.
0: <laughs> so what a man, what a man! So there's two in his history, and I think we skip down to more generations, and there's there's more of this family, isn't there? Uh, her, Sal's grandfather, I think, uh, uh, that uh, he, he did a fair bit.
1: Oh yeah, I mean, he <laughs> yeah, started out. He, was in the, uh, he went to Harvard, which is one of our great institutions, and uh, he was in the first intercollegiate sporting event ever held in the United States in 1852 between Harvard and Yale, which is another one of our great old institutions, in and, and rowing. And so they, they had a match, and it's, it's been going on ever since but that that was the very first, uh, Harvard won, so he won, it was the very first intercollegiate sporting event, so, and I mean, it just kind of goes on from there, I mean, he was the, when we went into the Civil War in 1860, he was the uh, youngest major general in the Civil War, and and which is quite a feat, and he, uh, he commanded a division of black troops, uh, and it was severely wounded at one point, and through the bravery of his troops was saved. And I, Have you ever heard of the about movie Glory over there? Uh, Glory, yeah. Yeah, uh, R- Robert Goldshaw, who also had uh, Colonel Robert Goldshaw, who had a uh, 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 division of black troops or a regiment of black troops and was killed uh he went after the war and retrieved his sword for the family he was grieving so uh, you know it's it's really fascinating uh leadership and and commitment and and uh, gosh it is it's really an interesting story so and south still has a has a sword uh so wow. so
0: Okay, and 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 you say, of course, the the inter-college uh, um, the rowing match. There, we have a similar thing between Oxford and Cambridge in in uh, in England, and and it is a, yes, a massive. Uh, it, it's a massive thing for these uh, these universities to take on each other. And he said he started that, and and then and then won it, and then and then. Well, uh, he, didn't he no, get into sailing then, Bob?
1: Well, he did get into sailing, but he did, he did first invest in railroads right at the right time. I mean, right when they were about to take off, you know, and. Our first, very first railroads were about the same time as in Great Britain and, uh, in the 1830s. The very, very first ones, but you know they didn't really take off till the and uh, you know around the Civil War. And and he he invested basically all their money into the railroads, and that paid off pretty handsomely. And so they they were fairly well to do from that point on. And uh, and, and then, yeah, then he, he, he got into sailing and he uh, defended the America's Cup uh, three times. Uh, so that was a, kind of a, a pretty good, uh, and that was between uh, Great Britain and, and the United States. A sailing yacht yachting match, and that's back when they were on open water with regular sail ships. Now they have these, these I don't know what the heck they are. They 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 don't look like sailing ships yeah, at like all. Air, like airplanes nowadays, yeah, aren't they? Well, yeah but all metal and yeah. But but uh, and you know, then one of his sons, uh, Frank uh, Payne was uh he he designed airplanes during world war one and afterwards he started uh designing yachts afterwards and and and, uh also some yachts that uh, tried out for the america's cup so they were very much into sailing and and the other other kind of thing he had is he had an estate west of boston and he was very much into raising some great sulky horses Okay. Yeah, uh, So so he had a variety of sporting interests, you might certainly,
0: say. Certainly sounds like an accomplished sportsman as well as an accomplished <laughs> soldier and a, accomplished everything just about. And As I said, to defend the America's Cup three times. I'm not sure. I don't know my America's Cup history, but to be on the team that's defended it three times can't be too many people that are in that history book, I don't suppose, Bob. And as you said, with, with breeding horses as well. And, and then would he, would he get into farming himself?
1: he had a variety of things he had had quite a bit of land he had about a thousand acres but it was more of a summer estate so they had an orchard they had a they had a herd of a small herd of uh, really pretty good air shares and guernseys uh and and the sulky horses were their main thing they bred and then you know on that amount of land they they did most everything on it and uh but that, Sal was not involved with the agriculture at that point. Okay. Uh, that, that was being done separately uh, from Sal's interests at that time. So, so she really didn't get any agricultural background coming out of that, although uh, uh, her grandfather, Charles Payne, had a, uh, quite a large farm for their summer.
0: Okay, and then we talk about her father, John Payne, uh, who uh, fought in the Spanish American War. I mean, is it these guys are soldiers and another sportsman? I think.
1: Yeah, yeah. He and his brother uh, uh, Sumner Payne, they they were in the first modern Olympics in 1896 in uh, in in uh, Athens, uh, Greece, and and it was you know at that time it was pretty loose, you know. If, kind of if you wanted to get there you were on the team kind of stuff so but they went over and they were both uh in pistol shooting the two because he uh uh john Payne, sailed over and picked up his brother who was in paris at the time and they went to greece and and uh and competed in the first modern Olympics, and both won what would be gold medals. At the time, they were just they got laurel wreaths for their heads, so they didn't they didn't get any any gold out of it. But anyway, it was a yeah, that was quite accomplished. So there was only about 15, 20 people on the team uh, representing America, and they were two of them. And that that was quite a quite a event and quite a feather in their cap.
0: What a family full of achievers, and it? it is unbelievable and and we'll go on to Sal and and you knew Sal, I think through your association with the, with the Red Angus and we'll maybe come on to your association with that part uh, in a minute, but tell us a little bit more then about Sal Forbes
1: well Sal was a, just i mean first she had a backbone, you know, and you can tell that from her family history you know she and and when she like when she married Waldo and uh, uh at Christmas time. I guess it would have been in 1939 and then she moved in ni- January 1940 to Wyoming uh, and never never been to the ranch before and that's where she spent the rest of her life and so that's quite an adventuresome person to take that on and to uproot yourself from uh, kind of uh, uh you know a comfortable life in the east, and and go to a ranch, uh, a large, extensive ranch, you know, with about a thousand cows. You know, it, it's it's a big it was a big operation.
0: Sounds, and, like a, uh, sounds like a girl a girl looking for adventure by the sound of it to me.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, and and, uh, and she was involved. You know, she got right in and was involved in everything. I mean, the branding, she, I mean, she wanted to be with them. So if they were out on roundups, she she got on a horse and went out with them. And so she learned the business. She wanted to learn the business from the ground up. And that's what she did.
0: And, and she'd obviously met uh, Waldo there in 1940. Of course, we're into the Second World War then. So what what were the, the circumstances there? That, they, that how, how did she get over there?
1: Well, I mean, uh we we didn't get into the war until uh forty one. Okay. At the end of forty one. So we were a little later than you guys. Uh, uh unfortunately you were in for a long time and, and had a had a rougher time. Well, we all had a rough time. That was a that was a terrible war against some terrible people. But uh what happened during World War Two though was when they got interested in, in Red Angus. and, and the, the story there was uh, American Angus Association's la by far their largest event was at the international in Chicago that was their big big uh, promotional event and that's where th- their biggest budget item was and that's where they were housed and and that shut down and uh, during World War II and actually became uh, where they they were uh, keeping uh, supplies in, in all those facilities okay. so uh, American Angus decided Hereford owned the West. They decided to take those resources and put them to the National Western in Denver, and got everybody that would normally show in Chicago to come out to Denver, and and they tried to erode Herford's market, and uh, and they were somewhat successful at it. But uh, Waldo and Sal were they liked. Angus quite a bit when they saw them, uh, but they didn't like the, you know the little fat cattle, you know overfed cattle. They thought there had to be a better way, and and that's the time when the, those those new PhDs from I, I don't know whether you ever heard of Sir Sir Ronald Fisher from over there was a quantitative geneticist and Sewell Wright and Dr J Lush they trained. Like Jay Lush trained 137 PhDs and he populated the whole United States with right. quantitative geneticists. And one of them was uh Stonaker at at Colorado State. And so the very first he told them about this new thing of performance testing. And, and and they bought it. They were the first herd that that implemented performance testing. And they started putting that Red Angus herd together in night. Um, 1945, and 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 uh, Tompkins uh, from the American Angus Association actually helped them find some good Red Angus cattle. Of course, he was a good former Penn Stater, <laughs> so I always have to get that in. But uh, yeah, that was a department, and he helped them out and found some good cattle. And they also had a Black Angus herd, and they wanted to show ones that were were raised via pre- selection for performance versus a typical selection of the time, more of a show ring thing, and they wanted to compare them. And so they thought using the red cast-offs would do that best.
0: Okay, uh, I can understand that to that put a bit of contrast in them give, them, give them an identity. And and they did took that identity forward. And I think Waldo, along with a chap called George Chiga, I think they single-handedly started the Red Angus in the USA, along with Sal as well, of course.
1: Yeah, it was, you know, the, it was 19... 19- 54 is when they got started and 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 waldo and george chiga uh, they wrote the rules and regulations and that that you had to have a weaning weight and they also had inspection for because at that time confirmation was part of our quality grading system and also to check there wasn't white in front of the navel and those kinds of things and and so confirmation was important at that point because because, like I said, it was if you were choice, you had to have choice confirmation. And, and, and so you had to have a weaning weight. And they put all these performance things in and, and also a commercial focus. And then um, Sal Forbes, Sally Forbes, and Miss S. Taylor McDaniel wrote the bylaws. And they got all kinds of bylaws put together from everywhere they could find. And they, they put together one that was membership-driven at the time. It's floated away from that since then, but yeah, th- I mean those those uh, Chica and and uh, and the For- Forbeses were the they were the backbone of it. And it, can, can I tell you just a little bit about George? Because uh, talk about the opposite of the Forbeses, he came from as poor a family as you could come from. Yeah, they got along really great, and then uh, but George's family was was very poor, and, and they, they came from Eastern Europe, and they homesteaded in uh, the prairie of Canada. And, I mean, they had a big family, and they couldn't feed them all, and George was a great big guy, big, tough guy, and, and he, and he, was, he was, got really big and was eating a lot, so, so he, they kind of sent him on the road when he was still in junior high to go out and make a living on his own and And he became a, a bouncer and and he he took up boxing and uh, and he ended up representing the uh, in wrestling. for his, and he ended up by, in the 1936 Olympics, representing Canada as a heavyweight wrestler right. and, and in the Berlin Olympics. And he also played professional football for the Regina Rough Riders. And so he was a, I mean he and the, and the, and the really funny thing was, Oklahoma State in the United States, it's in the South Central, uh, they recruited him to uh, play football and wrestle for Oklahoma State. And and so we're going to have NCAA, that's the National uh, Collegiate Athletic Association, and they, they oversee the rules over here. So we still need to have an investigation because they uh, Oklahoma State pulled a guy that had never graduated, never even got to high school, <laughs> played professional football, and, and he also wrestled. And but anyway, he came down, he got an education in animal science, and he got a master's in genetics. And then he, at night he got a law degree, and then he went into World War II to get citizenship. So I mean, he was a he was another Charger. He just came from a very humble background. So you had these two really A-type people, the Forbeses and the Chigas, that that put it together.
0: Fantastic. I mean, this is just a story you couldn't make up to the association of these people together. And and that would be, as you said, the the mid-50s. And then they start the Red Angus Association. And, And why did they do that? I mean... You, I can hear what you're saying about the red Angus, but it's it's breaking away from a long tradition of of uh, of black Angus, of course. And they must have met some serious resistance from the traditional Angus guys, surely. What do they have to do to, to to get that that job going forward?
1: Well, you know, it was you have to switch out of the idea of it being a breed, and because of what it was, was a philosophy, and and the red cattle were just a. A tool to implement the philosophy. So, if you think about it in that way, it, it makes sense. And, and for people like George Chica, he could afford them. You know, uh, uh, you know, the Forbeses could go out and buy the cattle they wanted. But George, he didn't have any money, and the red cattle he could go out and buy. You know, really good cattle uh, that, that he could afford to implement. He was into line breeding and performance testing and other breeders like that. And then there was also some breeders uh, in the South that that wanted them for heat tolerance with the red. So, so it all kind of made sense. And, and, you know, these were throwaway cattle that they get inexpensively and then they could implement the philosophy
0: so wow uh, okay that that makes a lot of sense when you put it that way it's like we've talked about some great breeders on this podcast in in the past and people who sort of earned their spurs learning how to breed rabbits and various things and and, and start with some animals you can afford and, and put your philosophy together but it sounded like uh, the red angers carried on bob and, and went from strength to strength didn't it and and I, I think performance as you said just now was probably the way they drove the whole thing was driven
1: yeah, they were the very first organization, performance organization to exist in the United States period. And the Forbes were the first performance herd to exist and the Red Angus Association was the first performance organization to exist in nineteen fifty four. So yeah. And I mean we were in the heart of the belt buckle showing with everything. Uh, you know, so so yeah, they were as opposite as you could be uh they were really running renegades and it was a whole new way of thinking so you you had to have have some uh, real strength of conviction to go that way Absolutely. and sadly one of the great promoters of it she would have field days that people would come from all over to and uh, ha- had Jim Bosma there, and and she was one of the big promoters of performance.
0: Sure, and and we talk about the red Angus a little bit further down there. Is it the red red gene is recessive? Uh, is, it, is it a sort of homo, homozygous um, red cattle that were breeding red cattle, or would there be some throwbacks or crossovers? How how do they how do they keep them red? They're recessive.
1: It's a so you, I mean, it's a they're homozygous red if you breed them to if you get put a black gene in there they will be black and uh you know in some some cases they they do move some uh black genes over into the into the red gene pool but it you know it takes a while to make them homozygous red you know because of the probabilities you know to get get what you really want it says a can be a slow progress and uh the other thing is, is is the uh black population is is a little different breed anymore because the red population is more of a maternal oriented uh breed and the uh and the black Angus population I mean this is a grand generalization because i mean there's all different kinds of cattle and different herds but if you take this big generalization they are more into supplying the brand which is certified angus beef so they're a little bit more terminal and the red angus are more maternal so that's in general you know more stability more longevity those kinds of things
0: we're we talking, obviously, we, we, they went on to set up the association which both uh, Waldo and George Ansel got involved in, but would there be a lot of resistance from the from the black people there? Would they be dissed as being imposters or, or something different or trying to go a different direction? Would there be animosity in a big way?
1: Well y- yes there was I mean they were considered genetic defects you know the red, red was a genetic defect so I mean they they didn't have any time for them and and they tended to be very large herds and they just they tended to just pass over the purebred market and go there there the market for in uh, for the vast majority of the history of the breed has has been selling bulls to commercial producers sure. And commercial producers, you know, they, they were a ready audience for what Red Angus was selling, you know, with the performance and the economics. But if, if you wanted to, there was no high-dollar purebred business in the red angus that okay. didn't exist
0: okay so it's a very much a commercial commercial market as you said and uh, looking a bit more than, down the maternal line and waldo was the first president i believe of the association when it formed and uh, and sally was the uh, first executive secretary so they really were they just didn't just they started the association and then they they took on to run it themselves
1: yeah, that's right. But unfortunately, Waldo died very early. He died in January 1956. So he was president. And then uh, George Chico had been vice president, took over as president. But that's when Sal took over the ranch. And, I mean, you want to talk about a backbone. Uh, here she she'd been, lived out there since 19... 19- uh, 40, but she took over, you know, a very large, extensive ranch, thousand cow ranch. <laughs> she was a woman. She was with a new breed, a new philosophy with performance, you know, and, and what was truly a man's world at that point. And I mean, you got to have a backbone that is uh, titanium to do that. <laughs>
0: I think she had a big family as well to, to go with it, didn't she?
1: Oh, she had seven kids at the time. The youngest one was a toddler when Waldo died. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, she had her hands full times three. But, I mean, she was up for it. She, I mean, she took it on full force.
0: Okay. Yeah, yeah. As I said, you knew her when your time, Bob, as the CEO of the Red Angus in, in, in your later, well, in, in his later form anyway. And uh, give us a few more stories about Sal because this podcast is about her. And, and yeah, I've got nothing but admiration for this for this lady.
1: Well, I mean, let me get, give you a couple of examples of when when the type change occurred in, you know, in the 70s, late 60s, and the 1970s. They, I, I was told by Jim Leachman there were no bigger, faster growing Angus of any color than what Forbes has had and i mean they they were it they they had the most what you know the best angus on the planet basically and at that point there was also a lot of birth weight was coming with those cattle and so they switched to lower the birth weight for their commercial customers so they actually backed those cattle back some when everybody else was charging towards where they were they actually backed them back so I mean it takes a lot of brass you know to go in the opposite direction right when you're at the peak but if your commercial customers are having too much calving difficulty uh, you know so so I mean that's the kind of you know that's the kind of brass they had and uh, you know what, what story is is they had a heifer that I guess was Flat out gonna would be national champion. And Jim Leachman saw her down there. He went down and visited and he tried to every which way he could to buy her, but she had a hundred and twenty-five pound birth weight. And Sal didn't want to have the Becton Stock Farm was was the name of the ranch uh, associated with anything with a hundred and twenty-five pound birth weight. So she would not sell her. And then uh, Daryl Shuler, which is Shuler Ranch, is another famous, you know, thousand cow ranch and Red Angus Ranch here. And Daryl was visiting with with, uh, Jim Leachman and he said, well, I can buy anything. It's just how much money you want to spend. And so... and so daryl said jim do you, you want a partner i'll go down and buy that heifer We'll, we'll win national champion and he said and so jim said you can't buy her and he just ripped out and signed a check and said it, you if you can buy her you fill out the, the number and he went down and did everything he could but sell, wouldn't wouldn't sell that heifer for anybody and and a few years later daryl asked where she was and he, she said oh, i don't know she's up on the mountain somewhere because the they they t- they trail the cattle with heifer calves up onto the mountain to graze for the summer. So she just went into the herd and became a nondescript cow. So I mean, she was her convictions were her convictions you know um, <laughs> it was no sway
0: principal the principled person that's for sure it'd be nice to think everybody's got that principle i think we've all got a bit of chivalry in us somewhere but uh, fantastic mm-hmm. to, to stand behind the principles and bob as i said you took on the ceo and we and we featured yourself on our podcast in in the past and uh, um but you took on the the ceo of the red angus association and sal would still be involved in it at that point would you
1: Oh yeah, and I'll tell you what—if uh, she she could keep a meeting lively because she would ask pointed questions, whether you were at a convention or wherever. I mean, she would ask the tough questions, and and she didn't mind. You know, she would get up and ask darn near anything. <laughs> so she always kept things lively, and she always. And, and she didn't mind, you know. Sometimes, it, uh, it, if you know, if it was a foolish question, sometimes she didn't mind. She just wanted to know. So she always had this curiosity. She was a great supporter of the juniors, uh, very commercially focused, and and just a great supporter of of what Brett Angus was about. So, I mean, she's always someone you could count on. I sat with her at her sale for uh, I don't know about. Uh, the, all of my tenure as a as exec, uh, I would go up and we would sit together at their sale, and it was it was fun. She would have the sale list, and and uh, you know, gosh, she was she was just she was a charger, and she, and she lived very humbly. She lived kind of in a, a cabin, <laughs> it was, and, and so it was. It, she was not a pretentious person in any way, shape, or form.
0: Uh, sound, sounds like a great character, and it's lovely to hear about these characters. And that's one something we've been trying to do on uh, on top lines and tales is look at characters in livestock. And I mean, that's that's one in, incredible person there, Bob. I really appreciate you you highlighting and bringing her to to the to my attention and to the attention of our listeners. And sadly, she died when, when while you were still there in that role, Bob.
1: Well, it was afterwards. She she was in ill health when uh, she she had, had a stroke when she got the portrait award in 2008 and it wasn't too many years after that that she passed away sadly but luckily we got her honor before that and 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 she did some other you know great things in her life as her sons came on and took more responsibility of the ranch uh, she did some great things uh, there there was a lot of strip mining for coal in Wyoming and she got some environmental regulations passed in Congress that you know she really put a lot into it and became an expert so to, to make sure the land was reclaimed and there there was a bill that reclaims and cleans up uh, acid mines you know spillage and those kinds of things and and actually uh up till this last time it passed it used to when these uh, coal companies went bankrupt they would pay their the 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 coal workers uh their their health care that they were promised as well as their Their uh, retirement but unfortunately that you know they they lost that in the last bill but it was only like 35 cents a ton that they they got out and the other thing she was into alternative health and so I would go out there be two sales in a row Buffalo Creek and Beckton. so I'd be there in Sheridan for about four days and then I would go up to Billings uh and uh for leachman sales which was a couple days long and she always had somebody there to heal me because i have back problems and some other things so she was into alternative health very much and so so she always had somebody there to work on me for four days whenever i was there and you know sometimes they they were pretty good and sometimes they weren't but it was it was was always kind of fun and and uh, you know it was, she, she was she was quite a person, and, and that was so fun that she always had somebody there to to get me get me straightened out. So she li-
0: literally had your back there, Bob. She literally had your back. Yeah,
1: that's right. That's a, <laughs> yeah. oh, it, it was fun. She was she was a fun fun lady.
0: Some, somebody I think I would love to have met, and 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 uh, it's absolutely as I said, brilliant that you've highlighted here to to myself and to our listeners, and I think uh, somebody that's uh, well heralded and, and Fantastic that she is not only the first uh, lady to be in the Saddle and the Sirloin uh, Club on the wall there, but probably the only one still, Bob.
1: Well, there's one other woman that has gotten it, uh, uh, Minnie Lou Bradley, of uh, you know, in Texas, uh, Angus breeder who was president of the Angus Association, and, and she was certainly deserving of it, really deserving of it, but there's only been two, and there was quite a distance between... Uh, uh, sal and and minnie lou uh and and so you know it needs to be you still need to get more in there that's for sure and get a little bit more balance and uh but uh, you know the, you know getting these these women that that uh back in when it was such a paternal man's world uh I mean, they really had to be special. They had to be twice as good as the men. And and people like Sal were twice as good as the men. I mean, she, there, there was just no doubt about it.
0: Yeah, that's brilliant. And, and it is something I would take criticism of with the top lines and tails with our characters. They do tend to all be male. And it's fantastic to, to hear of a woman taking on that role in a man's world. And and an encouragement, I think, to a lot of youngsters. Bob, it'll be the same on your side of the pond as it is on ours. where There's a lot of young ladies now getting involved in showing the cattle and, and getting into, into to to getting themselves to the top, and uh, this is a fantastic encouragement to them as to what you can achieve. As you said back then, you need to work twice as hard. Hopefully, now you don't have to work twice as hard. But a great uh, great chance to give some opportunities and and a and a role model, should I say, to some of these young young girls and young ladies going into the cattle business.
1: And they and they need role models because we are seeing way way more women uh, in in. Re- uh in the industry we see uh, here in the united states we're seeing way more women judging shows now Uh, i mean it's it's not uncommon to have a woman judging a show before it was really rare to have a woman judging a show and so we, we are seeing we're seeing more that are are very integral in their operation not just keeping books but i mean out working cattle and so so it is changing but i mean it had to take these pioneers you know the sally forbes and the minnie lou bradley's to to make that happen and 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 to give the role models that they needed
0: brilliant And, and uh I don't think we've quite redressed the balance there on the top lines and tails there, but that's fantastic there to to give the give the ladies a little bit of a, of a show on on the on the front of the podium there, Bob. And I really appreciate you bringing that to my attention, and that's been fantastic to chat through uh, what I would call a legend that was uh, was Sal Forbes and 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 the family before her.
1: Oh, I, I wish you could have met her. I wish everybody could have met her. Okay.
0: Well, thanks, Bob. Bob, that's brilliant. Thank you for your time, as always, and your enthusiasm with the Top Lines and Tails. And we've had association now going on for well over a year, maybe two. And uh, there's there's plenty more out there. So um, I always appreciate your input into the Top Lines and Tails podcast. Oh, I
1: mean, it's so much fun. And uh, and we've been working a little bit on some Angus projects, too. So that's fun, too. Uh, we've been documenting some Angus things together. And and uh, so, uh, gosh, we, we're, we've been having some fun lately.
0: You're right, Bob. You're right. We are. We've got got a few little projects on the go, and uh, hey, watch this space. Some of that might just come out later on. But uh, Bob, really appreciate your time and thanks for being with us on Top Lines and Tales.
1: Well, thank you so much. It's been great, and again, it's always an honor for you to invite me.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Top Lines and Tales, your weekly livestock podcast. And as always, we'd like to mention our sponsors, Harbro, for their fantastic continued support. And don't forget that Harborough are trading in over 20 countries across the world. So all you Top Lines and Tails listeners can get in touch with them to find out more about uh, about what Harborough do there. Do look them up on the on the internet, on social media and various other places, as well as, of course, contacting your local representative. And uh, if you are on social media there, don't forget to look at the Top Lines and Tails Facebook page, where you'll find more information about this fascinating episode and other episodes and photographs and everything else, chats and all sorts. So please get involved with our social media presence there on Top Lines and Tails.